Well, so glad that you're here this morning. I'm Pastor Tim, and we are in our second installment of this series, uh, James, and we are looking at uh, practical faith in a real world, and this morning's topic is obedience. I can sense the excitement already building in the room. Uh, Before I get uh, to that topic, though, I've got a a couple of uh, housekeeping things to take care of. In your seat back uh, this morning, you will find this card, the connection card update, and this is different than your connection card on your bulletin. Uh, Every so often, we try to update our records, uh, and here's what we find. Many of you who are related to each other in real life are not necessarily related to each other in our database which creates some problems for us in communicating and serving you. So uh, whether you've been here uh, a week or 25 years, we're asking everyone uh, to fill out this update card with all of the information about your family so that we can uh, update our records as well and, and serve you better. Also, this Friday morning, uh, I am leaving for uh Uh, Tanzania and Kenya, and uh, we have at the missions table, we have this card, the prayer card that I'm asking you uh, to join me in praying for my trip uh, as I climb the world's tallest freestanding mountain on behalf of World Vision and Child Sponsorships. We have these packets at the mission table as well. Every child uh, represented there is from uh, Kalapata, Kenya, uh, which is where we're sponsoring children. We've already sponsored over 120, uh, but we have a lot more to go. And so if you've not sponsored a child, I would uh, encourage you to prayerfully consider that uh, as well. And there's a flag out there that I'm going to take to the top of the mountain, and I want your name on that flag. So uh, before you leave this morning, uh, if you would sign that flag, I'd be uh, uh, proud and, and pleased uh, to uh, uh, fly that flag for as long as I can uh, on Mount Kilimanjaro uh, next week and uh, celebrate what God is doing in the life of this church. And then one more family item. Um, some of you are aware, uh, Joel and Shalane. Uh, Van Ravensway has been a part of our church family for over 25 years. Joel has served, uh, is serving as an elder, has uh, for several years. Um, their child, Carly, passed away yesterday. Um, years of physical struggle and uh, medical issues and that sort of thing. Some of, many of you are familiar with that. Uh, but just wanted you to, to know that. Uh, details will be coming uh, sometime this week, but uh, certainly be in prayer for Joel and Shalane and Sydney and Gregory and their whole family as they walk through this very difficult time. Many of you know that personally what that's like. And so I want to take a moment uh, to do that right now before we get into uh, the second half of James. So would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful uh, for this family and for what they mean to us personally, what they mean uh, to this church, uh, their service, their leadership, uh, their gifts that they have shared uh, openly and willingly in the life of this church. Father, for the way that they've demonstrated their faith and their hope in you through this long journey of physical and, and, and uh, medical struggle. For Carly, we are so uh, happy and we are celebrating her release uh, from her bo- broken body and rejoicing uh, in her uh, new experience in heaven with you. Uh, but Father, as, as we grieve this loss, we also ask for your comfort and peace uh, through uh, uh, Only what you can do, Father, you are good, and your love endures forever, and we lean on this. We ask this on behalf of the Van Ravensways. Uh, To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so you uh, have an outline, you have an app, you have a Bible. We are looking at the second half of the first chapter of James uh, this morning, and we are talking about obedience, which is not a fun word, but it is a very important word. Here's the deal about uh, obedience. First and foremost, friends, obedience is not about doing what somebody tells you to do. Obedience is not simply doing what somebody tells you to do. Obedience is discovering the path to becoming who God created you to be. Obedience is the way that you discover who you were made to be and how to live in the freedom and the fulfillment of that identity and purpose. Parents, uh, you know this. Your job is not to control your children as much as you would like to. But your job is to prepare them. Your job is to equip them. Your job is to help them understand who they are and the life that God has called them uh, to live. Now, you cannot do that uh, without obedience on their part. Uh, Without obedience, they will not become the person God has created them to be, nor will they experience the abundant life that God uh, desires for them. You individually cannot be the God, the person God made you to be on your own because we are sinners, we're broken. The Bible says that we are wise in our own eyes, which is simply a kind way to say we're all foolish. We all think we know better than God. We all think we can do better than God. Uh, and so in our foolishness, we obstruct and rob ourselves of the person and the life God desires for us. And so this is, what, this is what parents want for their children. This is what those in authority over us are designed to do. This is what the word of God uh, it, it serves us with to teach us obedience, which is only to help us to discover the path uh, for the sake of life itself. So we are in the second week of this letter from James, uh, and if you'd missed last week, uh, they do kind of dovetail into one another, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. James, we learned last week, was the half-brother of Jesus who moves from half-brother to servant, to being a follower of Jesus because of the resurrection. Think about this. James grew up in a household uh, where Jesus, his older sibling, was actually quite literally the perfect older brother. And I don't know about you, any of those, uh, any of you who grew up with an older sibling, if there's one thing that you did not want to do in life is what your older sibling told you to do, right? Uh, I grew up with an older perfect sister. I mean, seriously, there was a point in my life where I thought she was perfect. Even today, I think she's pretty awesome. But when my parents left her in charge of me, it never went well. One thing I did not want to do was what my older sister told me to do. So here's James. He does not identify. He doesn't even mention the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus. He just says, I'm the servant of Jesus. I am the servant. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my master. Jesus has complete and exclusive authority in my life. I'm living my life to do what Jesus says which is a pretty incredible testimony. He's just talked to us in this first half of the the chapter about trials and temptations, where they come from, what they can do in our lives when we know who God is and what God wants for us. So what's the difference between a trial and a temptation? A trial is a test. Temptation is a test. Both trials and temptation are a test of your character and your patience and your compassion. It's a test of your faith. And so a test can either be a trial or a temptation. God uses tests 
uh, to develop you. You know what? T- Satan uses tests to destroy you. God wants to use a test to build you up. Satan wants to use a test to bring you down. I, my, one of my favorite stories is, is Jesus and Peter right before the crucifixion where Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times and Peter denies that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And Jesus says, you know what? You are going to do that. And how you respond to that test and how you treat it is either going to be a trial or a temptation, but how you respond to that test is either going to make you stronger or weaker. And Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter, that you would pass the test. And not only that you would pass the test, but that you would in turn uh, strengthen your brothers because of you passing the test. You think about the tests in your life, be it trials or temptation. God is not the source of evil. We learned that last week. You cannot blame God for the tests in your life, but what you can do is look to God to use those tests to bring the good out of the bad. And so that's where we are at. Uh, this is where we're at in this letter. So James goes on, starting in verse 19. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to listen to these words, and then we'll unpack them uh, in a moment. But if you'd stand with me, As I read chapter 1, starting with verse 9, you can follow along if you have it in front of you. But here's what James says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the first letter. This is the first writing Um, penned that is included in the New Testament, even before the Gospels were written, James was taking the verbal teachings of Jesus and writing to the persecuted church, the dispersion, uh, about how to live out these teachings uh, during their tests uh, to make their faith very practical in a very real world. And so many scholars believe, and you can see the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. James takes uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and makes very practical application in this letter. Here's one of the more obvious examples uh, that we find in verse 22. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is what James says. But it's very familiar to what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, where he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, see the familiarity? Uh, Hearing my words and then doing them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. James uses the illustration of a man looking in the mirror. Jesus uses the illustration of building a house on a rock, talking about the importance, the importance, how vital it is, a house built on sand cannot withstand the trials and the temptations that come our way. Only a house that is built on the rock. And Jesus is the rock. Jesus is our foundation. And so James, as he writes to this church, 
going through the persecution and scattering throughout the area, he's saying the only way that you're going to weather this storm, survive this storm, is the foundation that holds you up, a foundation that cannot be moved. And how, how do you build that foundation? Well, everyone who hears these words of mine and do, does what? Does them. And does these words. Now, this is going to take me a minute to unpack, but bear with me because I believe this is so important to those who have a desire to follow Jesus. We talk a lot about obedience in the church. The Bible talks a lot about obedience. We talk about obedience in the Christian life. We need to do what he says, do what he says, do what he says, do what he says. Let's, let, we got, we've got to obey the word. We've got to obey God. Now, friends, that's vital, but we've got to be careful because here's the point that I, I want to make. If, if we're not careful about the obedience factor, we will make the Jesus life all about the obedience instead of the life. Okay. Following Jesus is all about the life of Jesus. Obedience makes that possible. But it's not about the obedience. It's about the life. Okay, let me unpack this a little bit further. Uh, why do you obey, if you obey at all? If you're obeying the word of God, if you're obeying Jesus, if you're trying to follow him in obedience, what is the purpose of the motivation? What's driving you? What's the end result in your mind of obedience. If you're not careful, we can read all of the rules and all the guidelines and all the thou shouts and all the commandments, whatever you want to call them, and we can read them in a kind of a moralistic or therapeutic way and make it all about the obedience and forget all about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God loves you and you don't deserve it. The gospel is Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus is the one who obeyed perfectly. For the ones, you and me, who cannot obey perfectly. So it's living the Jesus life. It's all about the life. Friends, when we focus on the law, we miss the life. Okay? When you make it all about obedience, you miss the relationship. It's all about the relationship. And so when you make it about the relationship, it changes the way you look at obedience. Uh, my wife yelled at me this week. Shocking, I know, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm the pastor. Who, who, who uh, and she sent me a text. I mean, she sent me a text, but it was all caps. So that's yelling, right? Um, uh, I deserved it. Just to clear the air. I, she asked me to do something that I said that I would do, and yeah. So... Um, to her credit, because she is an awesome person, she waited until I didn't do it several times before she called me out. So um, here's, here, you understand this, married people. Uh, why do you obey your spouse? Well, that's even a bad word, way to put it. Okay, so why do you do the things that your spouse asks you to do? Why do you do, why do you want to please, uh, hopefully you want to please your spouse? This applies to any relationship, but marriage really illustrates this well. Friends, there... There's no relationship when, all, when it's all about checking off the boxes of responsibility. Okay, I can do for you, I can do the list. I can do the list for you, I can do the list for my wife. Checking off the list, you do this for your boss, you do this for the government, you do this for all kinds of authority over you. You can check off the list of responsibilities. There's no relationship. But when there's a relationship, it changes the motivation to check off the list. Uh, if, if the only reason 
I put my dishes in the dishwasher or I put my dirty clothes in the hamper or I make the bed when I'm the last one out of it and now you're getting a clue for the things that I don't do. Why, why, why don't I fold up the afghan and put it on the back of the, the couch like, like she really likes it? I, I don't know why I don't do that. I'm a broken sinner. You've got to pray for me because I can't ever seem to get this right. But here's, here's the deal, friends, and I'll say it again. I could do all those things and still not have a relationship that I want with her. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I cannot have a relationship with her if I'm not doing the things that please her. And if I, if, if I love her, then I'm going to have, my heart's desire is going to be to do what pleases her. The fact is, at the end of the day, I love my wife, and what's more compelling is the fact that she would ever love me. That's the shocking part of this story. But that's what makes me want to check off the list. Uh, not because I want to be obedient to her, but because I love her and I want the relationship that that obedience brings. Does that make sense? There's a path. There's a path. Now, having confessed that, uh, in one of these days, I'm going to make all of you get up here and do the same thing, okay? I, I'm tired of doing this by myself. But uh, having confessed my failties, I mean, you, you might see my wife this morning, um, and uh, she will, if you ask her, she will tell you that I'm not an ogre, okay, that many times I do do these things, and uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm just imperfect, but I'm, I'm really good at being a husband, and uh, she'll tell you that because I've just put it in the script, and she would look foolish if she did so, disagreed with that. So uh, anyway, I hope, I hope I'm clarifying the, this issue. You know, it's so easy to get legalistic in our walk with Jesus and miss out on the abundant life that the relationship with Jesus offers. And so it's so easy to lose sight of the very gospel that shows us the path to the abundant life. So much of the New Testament is written to address that problem. Listen, Jesus did not call you to obey. He called you to follow. He called you to follow. He invites you into a relationship of love, not obedience. Following Jesus is a relationship. But the deal is you cannot follow him without a path. And so following him is not, not, not about the path, but you can't do it without the path. It is, it is about Jesus. That's why he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But well, a lot of times his yoke doesn't feel very easy and his burden cert is certainly not light. But friends, what makes it, diff what makes it easier? What makes it lighter? It it's, it's a loving relationship. It's love. Discipleship becomes not a list of rules to obey, but a path to be followed. Now, one more thing before we get into our verses this morning, because verses 16, 17, and 18 is a trans transitional statement between trials and temptations and the obedience that James talks to us about in this next section. Verse 16 says, do not be, be deceived, my beloved brother. Deceived about what? Well, deceived about trials and tem temptations. God is not the source of evil. You cannot blame God for the tests that come into your life. God allows them to build you up and to strengthen you. So we don't blame him. We look to him so that we can grow deeper and stronger uh, in our following of Jesus. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from God, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is the source of everything good, and he does not change. So everything that comes into your life, if we look to him, he can bring the good out of that life. Verse 18, out of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be kind of first fruits, first fruits, say that word, first fruits, say it again, first fruits of his creation. Now, what a first fruit, what is that? 
Now, we have to go back to passages like Romans 8 to understand what Paul is say, or James is saying here. Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole earth, uh, all of God's creation was corrupted by the fall, the sin, you and me. When we sinned in the Garden of Eden, we didn't just mess up our lives, we messed up everything. All of creation is now broken and corrupted under sin. Hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Friends, everything is broken. But because of the gospel, we know that one day when Jesus returns, everything will be restored. Everything will be renewed. Everything will be redeemed and repurposed back to its original design and purpose. Everything will be made new. But James is saying to us here that he's starting with you. You're the first part of that. You're the first fruit of that redemption. He's demonstrating in you what's going to happen when he returns, okay? So in Christ right now, even in your trials and temptations, you are a new creation in Christ. And so what the universe has yet to experience and what you have yet to experience fully has already started in you. You are the first fruit of his redemption and repurposing. Now, why is, th why is this important and why am I making this point, friends? Because how you see yourself is how you're going to live your life. Your vision of who you are, your understanding of who you are, is going to drive how you live. Without a vision, people perish. So James, before he ever talks about obedience, he, talks, he casts a vision for who you are. And who are you? You are a first fruit of his redemption. He's redeeming you. He's repurposing you. He's making you new. That is, that is who you are. That is who you're becoming. And when you understand that, when you understand who Jesus is and what he's called you to be, that will shape your thinking and that will shape your behavior. That will put a different perspective on the path of following Jesus. Again, example, parents, you look at your kid and you look at their potential, you look at what they like or desire or what maybe they're gifted for or what their talents are. What, how do you get your kid motivated to pursue what you think they might be good at? How do you, baseball, how do you get your kid interested in baseball? Well, you probably take them to a baseball game or you play baseball with them. How do you get them motivated uh, to pursue music? You probably take them to a concert or you expose them to some kind of a, a musical thing. How, why do kids ever want to be a gymnast? It's probably because they've watched the Olympics. No wise parent ever set a child down and handed them a, a rule book on baseball and said, here's how you get to the major leagues. Right? I mean, no rule book ever inspired an Olympic champion. You you cast the vision for who they might become. It's the beauty of who they were made to be and what they were equipped to do. It's the beauty of that vision that motivates their heart to pursue it. Now, at some time, you're going to have to do, deal with the guidelines and the rules and, and the things that help them pursue that. You cannot pursue the vision without the path, but it's not about the path. It's about the vision. This is the life God has called you to. This is the life Jesus wants for you. And you are right now a first fruit of that vision. And so if I want to pursue that vision, if I want to realize that vision, there is a path for me to follow. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this is what James says to us next in this next section of Scripture. Obedience is the path to fulfill the vision of life and relationship. The path is leading us 
to Jesus. So how do you follow that path? Three suggestions. Here's the first one. You've got to receive that path, receive that word humbly, humbly. In verses 19, uh, he says you've got to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, he's just talked to us about trials and temptations. So as you're going through all the difficulties of life, here's the deal, friends. The natural human reaction to anything bad in your life is to stop listening and to start talking, start whining, start complaining, start getting upset. Our go-to is to lean into our own understanding and blame God or anything else for our bad time. Friends, we don't, if we don't have a biblical perspective on our suffering, we will allow human reasoning and emotion to drive how we behave. We will take matters into our own hands. As I said last week, the problem with our problems is that we make bigger problems out of our problems because we don't have a biblical perspective on our problems. We don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling us to and the path that he has us on, the journey to transformation. I miss out so much on the goodness of God simply because of me. I'm, I'm my biggest problem because I think I know better. I think I can do better. Friends, the gospel is that I cannot do better, but that Jesus has done better. He has done for me what I could not do on my own. He will never forsake me or fail me or fail to finish what he has started in me. Do you remember the story of Job? I love that story. That is my story. He loses everything, and once he wants to understand. He asks the why question. He just, he just wants to suffer well, and he struggles through that. He argues with God. He complains to God. He, te- he pours out his heart uh, to God, which is, what, which is what you have to do, friends. When you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're in pain, when you're grieving, You've got to give voice to that grief. That's how you heal. You've got to go to the source of your goodness. Job is gushing out all of his lament. And there's one point in the story where God says, okay, Job, it's enough. I love you. I understand that you're hurting. And I want to listen to your complaint. But I I have listened to you. Now you listen to me. And, and God, for the next several chapters, God literally puts Job in his place. God says to Job, you need to be still and know that I am God, which means you are not. So don't tell me what is right or best. Don't tell me what to do next. Don't tell me how to, how to do my job. You don't know the big picture. You don't know what's coming up. And so you've got to get off of this entitled arrogance, thinking that you know better than me and that you can do better than me. You've got to stand back and watch what I can do for a person who's humble enough to receive it. Humble enough to receive it. Friends, Jesus, following Jesus is hard. Following the word of God is hard. Obedience is hard. And only the humble, only the ones who recognize the fact that I cannot do this on my own. I do not know what's best. I, do, I cannot do God's job. Only the humble can see the working of God in their lives. To follow the path is to receive the word humbly, and then secondly, to reflect on the word intently, which in other words means with purpose. 
with purpose. Most, uh, now, James talks about a man looking in a mirror, which is a really interesting illustration because in the first century ancient world, mirrors were very rare and they were very ineffective. Mirrors were made of metal, metal not the kind of you know, perfect glass that we have today. Most people in the ancient world were very unfamiliar with what they looked like. They never saw themselves in a reflection. In today's culture, we don't, we don't understand that at all. One source said that on average in today's world, people look at their reflection about eight times a day. Now, some of you are way over that. And it's obvious that some of you are way below that, okay? So uh, here's the deal with mir- mir- women. L- ladies, let me... Regardless of how lovely you look, only women can look at a mirror and find something wrong with themselves, and only men can look at a mirror and say, looking good, you know? It's just, it's just, they just... Here, here's the deal, friends. Before the Word of God empowers us, it exposes us. Before a mirror can correct you, it's got to show you where you're wrong. Following Jesus, who is the Word, exposes our brokenness, the falseness of our hearts, the impurity of our intentions, exposes who we are, really are. We think we're loving until Jesus confronts us with our bitterness and resentment. We think we're generous before, and then Jesus confronts us with our materialism. We, we think we, we love serving people until we get an opportunity where we choose selfishness instead. We think we're committed until Jesus calls us out of our comfort zone. To respond to the word, to reflect on the word with intentionality leads us to the third point, to respond to it with deliberate, uh, deliberately, to be deliberate in how we respond to this. James says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, you are God's first fruit of redemption. And so in the Old Testament, the first fruit was the part that you gave God, uh, the first part of your harvest Before you took anything in for yourself, you gave this first part to God. That was the first fruit offering, which means that part didn't belong to you. It belonged to God. Which is to say then, if you are the first fruit of God's redemption, what what does that mean? That means that I, I belong to God, that I don't belong to myself, that there is an authority over me, which means I do not call my own shots, that I do not do my own thing. My life is not my own. And James makes it very practical in verse 26. He says, if you are not your own, if you are responding to the word uh, deliberately, uh, I will keep a bridle on my tongue. I will only speak what's what's truthful and graceful and loving. I will will speak grace into people's lives. I will not gossip or profane or lie. Uh, Verse 27, I will care for those. I will care for the least of these. I will love those in need. I will visit orphans and widows. and And I will take my integrity and my character seriously. I will keep myself unstained from the world. Again, listen, if you're not careful, when you look at these three things, and that's just a partial list, of course, and he, he talks about, if anyone thinks he is religious, and friends, that's not a bad word in this verse. He's just saying, if you want to follow Jesus, these are the things that will reflect a, a life following. But if you're not careful, friends, we will just simply reduce this as a list to check off, a moral list that makes ourselves acceptable, trying to obey the law and miss the beauty or the vision to which you've been called. 
what characterizes a person captured by the, by the vision of the gospel, a person who understands the gospel, seeks to live out the gospel in very compassionate and practical ways. And he just gives us three examples of this, a controlled tongue and a compassionate heart and a conscientious life. Again, how do we do that? I want to go back to verse 25 because he, he mentions this term law of liberty, another uh, law of freedom, a perfect law. Now, this is, this is interesting to the modern American mind because we feel, this is kind of a contradictory term in the way that we view laws or rules or commandments or anything restricting our freedom. The law of freedom doesn't, don't tell me what to do, I want to be free. Don't restrict me to anything, I want to be free. Laws are restrictive and negative. But question, what if God intended for laws to be positive and liberating? What if you and me, and I know this is shocking, but what if you and me had the wrong definition of law? What if we had the wrong perspective on obedience? Well, let me, let me demonstrate or illustrate it this way. A fish was made for the water. He has gills to extract oxygen from the water. Um, he has fins uh, to allow him to maneuver through the water. Question, what if the fish had the same understanding of restrictions as you and me often have? What if the fish said, don't tell me what to do, I want to live on land. Don't tell me what's good for me, I'll say what's good for me. I want to live on land. I want to be free to live on land. And so you take that fish and you plop him on the sidewalk and you say, okay, let's see how freedom works for you. Friends, you were created in the image of God to live a life of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But that freedom is found on a path. And only those who humbly, with intentionality, follow that path find the freedom that God has called you to. Every good and perfect gift is from the authority over your life, giving you, desiring for you freedom. Following Jesus is a path to life. Ushers, we are ready for communion. And here's the deal. Here's, Jesus has called you. He didn't call you to obey, friends. He called you to follow. And that following requires a path, a path of obedience that brings you to life. Je now get this, friends. This is a, Jesus is the only one who obeyed and got punished for obeying. Jesus is the only one who obeyed perfectly and was condemned for breaking it so that you who broke it could be freed. Friends, that's the gospel. And this is what we celebrate in communion. Jesus who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I don't know about you, but that motivates me to pursue the path to life. I want to read this passage for us as we think about communion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, who walk the path, not according to the flesh. It's not about the path, but according to the Spirit who is life to us. Would you pray with me? Father, may we pursue the path, not in a way that makes us acceptable, but because we are acceptable in your sight. Not because we want you to like us, but because you love us. Because you want us to have the life you died to give us. And we celebrate that gift in these moments of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.